In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins. The grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. In the last few days we've had the readings from one of the minor prophets, the prophet Micah, who was a peasant born during very dramatic times among the people of uh, Israel when the Assyrian power uh, was growing and eventually took over and uh, conquered the people of Israel in the north, the northern kingdom. And he was uh, from the environs, the the areas of uh, Moresheb, and uh, this was a country that was part of the land of the Philistines, and he was probably... uh, peasant, so he was not of noble birth, um, but he certainly experienced all the cruelty of the Assyrians that invaded the land in the year 711 BC, and then later on, of course, invaded Judah. And uh, he became uh, quite a, a vigorous and outspoken defender of the people of Israel, and he was, we know he's a contemporary of uh, the prophet Isaiah. But he's not, he's not a court prophet, he's not as polished, he's not as refined, and yet he nevertheless brought about a very important reform under the, under the king Hezekiah and, uh, and managed to, with his vigor, with his drama of speaking, bring about a lot of social reforms. Uh, because there were a lot of injustices, there were, I don't know, land monopolies by the noble, the wealthy classes uh, that kind of amassed land just for themselves. There were many homeless people around because of the invasions, and uh, and he talks about the idolatry that was going on among the people, a lot of the corruption, and uh, the kind of empty ritual that he saw among many of the people of Israel, and the people of Judah that was kind of like devoid of true integrity, true religiosity, true true faith. And uh, he denounces, he's the one who like really denounces a lot of the idolatrous uh, uh, practices. And uh, well, today we arrive at the kind of end of his book or his writings, chapter 7, which he, he like tones it down a little bit and he evokes more the clemency of God and his mercy and how God will indeed have, uh, despite all this stuff that the people of Israel have done, that, that, they, that God will have some um, compassion on his people and uh, he will not destroy them as had kind of like originally been suggested and um, that he is righteous and he is full of forgiveness and um, and that really he is full of forgiveness and the Abrahamic covenant still is there. That the people of Israel, despite what they have done, despite their sins, they are still part of that family of God. And he kind of fills them with hope. And, um, and one of the key 
elements that he, you'll, you'll see it in today's readings, is that he emphasizes God's, God's goodness, God's mercy, his clemency, but that we should stay faithful to this covenant and the covenant of God and the covenant family, you could say, of, of the people of God. And this idea of the covenant or maybe the family of God is echoed uh, in today's uh, gospel where we see how Mary and what is described as Jesus' brothers appear outside of the house where the Lord is speaking. It's this passage we're familiar with from St. Matthew. Jesus is speaking. There's a lot of people and his brothers we're told his brothers, his mother and his brothers or sisters, they're, they're seeking to speak with him. So somebody told him, this is what we read in today's gospel, somebody told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside asking to speak to you, to speak with you. But he said in reply, the one who told him, to the one who told him, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my heavenly Father is my brother and sister and mother. It's a, it's a curious expression. We can picture the Lord now in our prayer as we speak to him this morning and want to enter into an intimacy kind of, of of being brothers of Jesus, sons of God the Father, how he's stretching out his hands, stretching his arms in a I guess you could say in a gesture of inclusion. These these people with me, he's saying, he's like embracing these people in front of his his disciples as his family. These are my brothers, these are my sisters, these are my mother. These are the people in some way, the Lord is suggesting that they are part of that covenant that was in the Old Testament, you know, repeatedly defiled and repeatedly being unfaithful to. But nevertheless, the covenant is still there. That family of God is, is still there. And these, his followers, his disciples, are part of that intimate family. And that he really feels at home with them. He feels welcomed. They feel all together. They were part of the followers of Jesus, but they were not simply followers in the sense of ideologues. They were part, you could say, of his family. And certainly the people of Israel, too, felt themselves part of this family. They had foreigners amongst them, but those were foreigners. But they really had a strong emphasis on this aspect of family. They were the chosen people, the people that were God's special love, the apple of God's eye. And now the Lord kind of extends that to his, his disciples. And he does so by referring, as we see, to God's will. Not to blood, not to the chosen people of Israel, but to God's will. If you do God's will, you are part of God's family. You are part, you are my brother, you are my sister, you are my mother. Naturally, if that is what makes you part of God's family, obviously it's a much broader meaning. It's not a reference to the nuclear family, which is a very narrow concept. When we say, I visited my family, we refer specifically to the people that, 
that are related to us normally, when we say that, uh, related to us by blood. Mm -hmm. And that very narrow understanding is quite actually quite modern. Mm -hmm. And when he says that, well, when we are told that Jesus' brothers are waiting outside, well, we know that that does not contradict uh, the perpetual virginity of Mary. Some people have latched on to that to suggest that Mary and Joseph later on had more children. It's one of what's sometimes described as an anti-Marian statement because it seems to go against the, the perpetual virginity of, of our Blessed Mother. But we know that Hebrew is not the most nuanced of languages. It doesn't have that many words. And so it had, in fact, no word for cousin. And, you know, the, we see that uh, this usage of brothers um, was used for cousins. It was used for even people in the extended family. They just didn't have a word for cousin. Everybody was just a brother. You're my brother. I, everybody's my brother, my sister, you know. So we understand it to mean somebody who's related by blood because we have a very narrow understanding of brother. But there it was broader. In the Greek, the word, as you know, was uh, adelphos, which is used uh, as a relationship that is beyond blood, a blood relationship. Adelphos uh, could refer to a cousin, it could refer to an uncle, it could refer to an aunt, or well, adelphos is a male, but, uh, but certainly it could refer to uh, an uncle. Even different family ties that you have, you know, that are in fact quite distant, they would, they would be Adolfos in the sense that they would be generic brothers. And so, um, so the, the Lord is more obviously not refer, referring here specifically to his own brothers. In other words, people, that are brothers that would have been born from our Blessed Mother that and we know the, whole, the Church holds on to their perpetual virginity of our, our Lady. And plus, we know from the Passion narratives, when Jesus is on the cross, he, and he's dying, he entrusts Mary to the care of St. John, his beloved disciple. Uh, not something he's likely to have done had he had brothers. If he had brothers, then he would have entrusted uh, one of his older, well, not older brothers, but one of his brothers to, to Mary, uh, or for that matter, to a sister. And uh, all the fathers of the church, all, they all refer to this comment of brothers and sisters mentioned in the New Testament and other places as well as really relations that were not siblings, uh, direct siblings of, the, of our Lord or, you know, children of Mary directly. But nevertheless, he acknowledges the bond eh, in the family that exists. And... We can reflect now in our prayer on the importance the Lord gives to doing the Father's will. You know, if you do the Father's will, you, he is saying, are in my family. I embrace you as my brothers, my mother. In other words, in the, into that, that intimate bond, which is a family. Mm -hmm. and, um, and in fact... You know, this is the expression he often uses, the, whoever does the will of my Father. It is practically a repetition of what he had said a, a few verses earlier, also in uh, St. Matthew, 
when he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only those who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. My Father, God the Father, of course. And those are my true disciples, those who do the will. Again, not just those who speak externally or have some kind of external expression of belonging, but who do the will of God the Father. And uh, this is what we're going to ask uh, today. We'll be invited in some way or another to do the will of God the Father. We, in our schedule, in speaking to others, in some way we will be invited to, to say yes to God's will in something. And in somewhere there, as we do that, we get more intimate. And it is really also beautiful to consider that in the work, in the work, we, we, we consider ourselves brothers. We're, we have a, a father. We, we, don't, we don't necessarily speak of him as the prelate, the prelate, which he is, he is the prelate, but we always refer to him as the father because we have this intimate sense of being connected by bonds of the same vocation, and therefore we always talk about uh, fidelity. Fidelity to that will, that desire of God, which is that we live out our divine vocation given to us by God. And in some way, in some way, when we are not fulfilling the will of God, in some way we are breaking the, that bond that holds us to this family. We are, in some way, rendering the whole edifice of our life very fragile. Because the, the edifice of that family that we are belonging to is cracking, you know, is beginning to, to break down. And so, you know, this has to be really, this doing the will of God has to be part of our DNA. And um, it's not enough for us simply to be content with externals, as our Lord says, Lord, Lord, you know, don't just say Lord, Lord. Do the will of the Father. We of course, you know, we think about it, we, we agree with the Pope, we love the Church, uh, you know, we even we pray, we come to do our prayer in the morning, we have a certain piety. But what really is our DNA? Can we recognize you know, that we are <clears throat> somebody who, who seeks out the, the will of God every day, listens to the Holy Spirit for clarity, does what the Holy Spirit asks for, fulfills the, the norms of the plan of life. And uh, our Lord at one point describes or, or, or compares the man who listens and does the will of God like the man who built his house on rock, like a strong foundation. The one who doesn't do it is, is building his house on a house of sand. Even calls him a stupid man, the person who builds his house on stand. It doesn't make sense. The rain will come and the, the floods and so forth. And, and what a fall. Lord, I ask you, help me to build my rock, rather my house, the house of my family, on rock, the rock of your will. This desire that you have for me specifically today. It can be in part in a schedule. It can be in part in what we've listened to in spiritual direction. It can be in part in, in the plan of life. 
And it is, it is truly fascinating to consider that the Lord does have a mysterious uh, plan for me. Sometimes it's difficult to accept it. But it has to be, the will of God has to be like a comfort, a com- compass, a compass for us. It tells us which way is north. And it properly uh, locates us on the map of our life. Sometimes it can be hard. I, I heard a story from Spain about a Spanish priest who eventually he used to go a lot on excursions and he died uh, climbing a mountain in the year 2009 and they made a, a video documentary about his life because he died rather tragically falling off a cliff or something and so after they did all these a video with a lot of testimonies and interviews about this priest's life his, his name was uh, he was a parish priest uh, his name was Pablo Dominguez I'd never I hadn't heard of him before I saw this video but uh and so one of the people that they interviewed was a woman who had been very far from the faith and she some, in some way ended up knowing about him somehow through some circumstance and uh, she recounted how she had gotten pregnant with her first child but in the womb the child was diagnosed with some kind of malformation and the doctors proposed that she have an abortion and uh, because it was going to be malformed or whatever, and so it was probably not going to survive. So she, because she, I mean, she wasn't practicing, but she sort of vaguely knew this priest from somebody else, so she she went to speak to him, and she was in great anxiety about this fact. And he so he said, look, don't abort. Go through with the pregnancy. Do it. Keep at it. And so she kind of reluctantly agreed to this, and she went and gave birth to a little boy, and uh, the priest, I don't know how they did this, but the priest was there and he baptized him almost as soon as he was born. He baptized the child and she was, of course, full of anguish. Uh, and, and, uh, but now, as he was baptized, she was deeply serene, deeply happy. And within, I don't know if it was hours or within a very short time, the, the child died. And they then had a funeral for this little, this infant, and, uh, and it was interesting, he said that, and this is what they showed in the video, that, that every, everyone has a vocation. Right? Everyone in this world, he said, had a, has a purpose. He says, I have a vocation, I'm a priest. Others have different vocations. And Juan, which was the name of the baby, also had a vocation. And it was easy for him. All his vocation was, was to be born. That was the will of God, that he be born and then enter practically immediately into the kingdom of, of heaven. He, the, the next world was just waiting for him to come. And as she heard this, this is what she describes in the interview, suddenly what had filled her with great anguish and despair now suddenly seemed marvelous to her. Suddenly she understood that that was his vocation, to be born and to die, born, boom, and die, and enter into the kingdom of heaven immediately. That was his vocation. That was his, God's will for him. She said, the will of God seemed marvelous, despite the, the tragedy that it would seem to anyone. And for us, the will of God must seem marvelous. It is not something that we must simply be resigned to. 
but, but something that you could say gives us wings, gives us authentic freedom, something that we're aware of, that we have that compass. We know, we know we're going the right way when we look at that compass, the compass of the will of God. But it will not always appear marvelous. It can frighten us. It can even freak us out. Make us think that if we embrace it, we're going to suffer tremendously. This is what Joaquin Navarro Valls, the spokesman of Pope John Paul II, said before he died. He said, Pope John Paul II always said yes to God, no matter what. He always said yes. And he suffered. He went through hardships. But he was serene enough. And we should today pray to God with that, to have that willingness to say yes. Sometimes, and most of the times, it will be in small details of my life, in my schedule, in my work, doing something right away. Even though I don't feel like it, even though it's unpleasant. Maybe, you know, we can go to the prayer not to ask God to do our will. Ask God, look, Lord, I would really like this to work out. Can you help me with this thing? That, in some ways, would be our will. Maybe it'll go inside, but, but maybe we could just ask God for the strength to do His will. To give, him, to give us strength, courage. You're, you have a will for me today. Most of the time, it won't require that much courage. could happen that we're too entrenched in our vision, in our uh, limited horizons. We need greater horizons, higher vision. The thing, you know, of God's will is not simply something theoretical. It gets anchored in our daily life. It's very important. Remember that story of that, that young girl who was waffling about her vocation. She didn't know what her vocation was, and she was praying, and she didn't know, and she was going back and forth. And so she decided to go to a shrine somewhere and uh, to speak to God and uh, to ask for light about her vocation. And uh, she was, it was a shrine of Our Lady, and Our Lady, she went to the statue of Our Lady, and Our Lady was there with the child in her arms in this, this statue. And, um, and, um, She's trying to figure out, should she get married or should she remain celibate? Celibate vocation. And um, she's looking at the child. She's looking at the mother. She's wondering, should I, stay should I become married or should I stay celibate? And then suddenly, the little child whispered, celibate, you know, I don't know if it was numerary. I don't know what it, what it was exactly, you know. You have to forego marriage, be, be a celibate. And the, 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 the girl said, be, be quiet, kid, I'm talking to your mother here, you know. <laughs> I'm talking to your mother, you know. But after that, the, the mother didn't say anything, so, you know, the mother of God just presented her with the child Jesus. Naturally, we have the example of our Blessed Mother because she said yes to the will of God uh, in the Annunciation. And that is what, what, is made, what made her our mother. But she also said yes at the foot of the cross. 
That was her, you could say, her second yes, perhaps much harder than the first one, when she said yes at the foot of the cross. Let's ask her to intercede for us so that we always say yes, whether it's in our vocation at the beginnings, whether it's at the foot of the cross. She was strong to be able to say yes when she saw her own son dying there. I remember when I was in Madrid for World Youth Day, I was very excited about being able to go and see Roger van der Weyden's Descent from the Cross, the famous image of our Lord being descent from the cross from 1450. And below him is Our Lady kind of swooning, and she is caught in a swoon or in a fainting moment by uh, by St. John, who kind of catches her. You know, it's a very famous uh, painting. And, but the image of Jesus descending from the cross and then the image of Mary swooning is almost echoed. They echo each other. And there, were, uh, there was a 16th century popular movement I think they called it the the movement of Our Lady. They, all, they called it the spasmismo or something like that. I don't know what they called it. And they wanted to make it into a theological definition, you know, meaning that Our Lady always did the will of God, even when she was swooning there at the at the uh, at the foot of the cross. And some even lobbied Pope Julius uh, II to to define this as a holy day of obligation, but. Uh, I don't think he. I don't think he did. We don't call. We don't have the feast of the spasmismo or whatever it's called. But nevertheless, she said yes, and we ask her now to help us say yes as well. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations that you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you how to put them into effect. My immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my guardian angel, intercede for me.